Thanks again, Ben. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome again if you're brand new today, and welcome back to the, the rest of you, most of you. Uh, good to see you all again today. Uh, we are in the middle of our series still in the books of First and Second Samuel. We're actually two weeks away from turning the page to Second Samuel, so to kind of get your bearings there. So we're almost going to be looking at that and uh, Saul's death as well as uh, David's kind of formal uh, taking of the throne, if you've been kind of following along and been here for that. Uh, it's kind of when the shift takes place there at the end of this book and the start of the next. But we're uh, right now in the middle of uh, these stories of the chase, we're kind of affectionately calling them, where King Saul is chasing King David with intent to kill him because he's jealous of him. Uh, and I think last week I mentioned, um, in case that's kind of hard to understand, Basically, just think of like, you know, working really hard your whole life at something, and then someone super young comes along and instantly does it better than you. It's that kind of feeling and how hard that is to, um, humbling that is to experience. There's a lot more than that going on here, but that's kind of the gist of uh, why Saul is so upset and angry. Uh, and last week, I talked about seeing ourselves in that and how in need we are as well uh, for a Savior and so forth. And so that's actually a definite layer. Uh, here going on in these, in these stories. Um, but today, we're going to look at another one of these little mini-adventures of David uh, being chased by Saul, how he's running from him uh, in different parts of the wilderness and the countryside, outside the city, how people have helped him escape, how he's interacting with people in the process of that. Seeing that clash between Saul and David, seeing uh, David's escape, also uh, next week we'll look at this, his restraint, his love towards Saul, his enemy, uh, how, and how Jesus really just fills the, the the narratives and the words uh, of these uh, stories as well. That's, that's what we're meant to see as Jesus is here in the shadows, in the white space, but also kind of explicitly as well in the words uh, and the actions of David, his ancestor uh, as well. So this is a, a book of genealogies, essentially, Jesus being the ultimate one in the line of uh, David. And so um, have that in mind too as we as we read. So today's a fun one. We're going to look at the idea of the forbidden bread. So in one of these stories, David goes into the temple and eats some bread. He's not supposed to. He kind of plays the role of the priest, even though he's not one. Uh, and so there's a lot of tension there. I'll explain that here in just a second. Uh, but it's one of my favorites. This is a fun one. First Samuel 21, 1 to 6. Follow along on screen if you'd like or a Bible you have in front of you. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered, David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Okay, so um, just to summarize this, uh, David is on the run from Saul. Again, he makes a pit stop in Nob, talks with a priest, asks for bread, ends up receiving the bread of the presence, or we sometimes call the show bread. Uh, this is the bread that was placed on the altar or the table inside the temple as a type of sacrifice weekly replaced every week on the Sabbath with fresh bread. So the twist here, and it's a big one, 
is that only the priests were supposed to eat it when it was replaced. David is not a priest. He's not a Levite, uh, the tribe of the priests. He's a Judahite. So the fact that he's doing this is blatantly uh, against the law. It's unlawful for him to do it. And yet, the story just kind of goes on. There's no kind of huge uh, stop here by the priest saying, don't do this. He actually kind of contributes to it. Nor is there any kind of um, divine voice from heaven speaking down against it either, you know, kind of commenting on it. The story just kind of goes on. After this, he also asks for Goliath's sword, acquires it, um, and then there's some other things as well. But this is kind of the big thing going on here in the first six verses is this pit stop. And it's not just a pit stop. It's a weird one theologically. It's an interruption in the story of how things are supposed to go. Only priests are supposed to eat the bread, but David here as a non-priest does and is not condemned for it. So how do we, what do we make of that uh, theologically is the idea. So the first thing I want to do to start is just to simply ask the question, how did Jesus interpret this passage? Because he does in Mark 2. And so I want to dive right into it because why wouldn't we? Jesus interprets this passage for us. And like we've been doing all series long, he interprets it around and in light of himself. All right, so let's read Mark 2, 23 to 38, and then we'll talk about 1 Samuel 21, kind of through the lens of Mark 2. And we'll see some other things about 1 Samuel 21 as well. This isn't like the be-all, end-all necessarily. Jesus doesn't say he's being exhaustive with the passage. But he also is, this is the one time in the Bible we have the Bible itself saying, this is what it means, this passage. And so we have to pay attention, right, to this and uh, give it an incredibly uh, heavy amount, of, hefty amount of weight in terms of uh, what Jesus is saying here because it's Jesus but also because it's Scripture interpreting it for us, all right? So Mark 2, 23 to 38 says this in the New Testament. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, so let me walk through that in three points uh, for summary and to maybe grant a little bit of clarity to it. So, one... Jesus' disciples are doing something unlawful or something that constitutes work on the Sabbath, the day of rest. Uh, It's an apparent break of the fourth commandment. And they're challenged by the religious people of his day. Two, Jesus responds, haven't you ever read 1 Samuel 21 about David and his friends and how they too did something unlawful by eating the bread that God commanded only the priest to eat and were not condemned for it? Then three, Jesus drops here the equivalence of a theological atom bomb in saying the Sabbath, or more broadly the law, of which the Sabbath was a part, was made for the Son of Man. It was made for Jesus, for his sake, to point to him, not the other way around. So Jesus is at the top of the pyramid, uh, not the Sabbath and not other laws. Uh, God is up there, right? Nothing else can take that place except him. So now to comment on this then, to begin to actually, first of all, before we get into some of exactly what Jesus is doing theologically, kind of as an aside, 
I can't harp on this enough. Look at how Jesus is reading the Old Testament. Notice he doesn't make 1 Samuel 21 into a moral lesson on feeding the hungry or something like that, as good as that is to do. Instead, he says, when pressed on Sabbath observance and why he's not doing it right, have you never read the Bible before? You never read the Old Testament? You ever read this story in 1 Samuel 21 about David? And then he drops another theological bomb in saying, your scriptures dictated that this time was coming, that I was coming in David's wake, that a time was coming when God's laws would be passed up by a king. This is what the story is about. And this is why he's drawing these lines between the, the two dots that constitute these stories and events. He's saying, I am here now. So there's a clear kind of reference, I think, back to David being his, an, his ancestor and similar types of stories happening now. They're both being chased. They both have friends or disciples with them. And they're both doing something unlawful, the Sabbath being broken. And he comments on this saying the scriptures foresaw that this time was coming and it was actually a good thing that it was happening. Or at the very least, it wasn't condemned. So now Mark 2's broader message here is the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments, is no longer a thing. Because Jesus is here. He's saying uh, in places like Mark, in Matthew 11, I am your true rest, body and soul. The law was made for me, to point to me, to give way to me. Not for the sake of me coming under it, to serve its purposes, as if its were the top of the mountain or of utmost importance. Jesus is saying, I am of utmost importance. And the law is down here pointing to me. Now that I'm here, it's taking a back seat. It's bracketed to the side. I am the one that can truly give you rest in a way that the law never, ever could or was actually intended to. Now, in a broader sense with 1 Samuel 21 in mind, which is not talking about the Sabbath, but interesting that Jesus uses it, though it's a Sabbath moment in his ministry, he looks at David's events and says, there's actually a very similar thing going on here. I know that David wasn't dealing with Sabbath law stuff, but temple law stuff, and bread law stuff, and priest law stuff, but it's the same thing. Jesus' messaging is the temple, the sacrifices, and the law itself is becoming no longer a thing. It's not over you in the same way, because I am here. The law was made to give way to me, to be fulfilled and surpassed and overcome by me because it failed to save or to give access to God. Now, it can be kind of confusing uh, talking about this stuff because sometimes Jesus says when talking about the law in these ways, I am the new version of these old laws, as in the new Sabbath. I'm like, you know, the new version of it, flesh and blood. Uh, I am kind of it continuing, but I'm also replacing it because it's me now, uh, not a, a law kind of cut into stone. So in one sense, that's more of like a linear view of like the law was this and Jesus was a better version of it, kind of a heightened flesh and blood version, a version of grace of it. Um, but in other times, he positions himself against the laws entirely and says, I am a breach past the old ways. My grace is altogether different from a do this keep these laws and then you will live, to quote Leviticus 18, kind of mentality. And in some ways, both are happening at the same time in this passage and in Mark 2, which is kind of why it's confusing. 
but there's a definite, quote, unlawfulness happening here, Jesus' words, in that story, but also in his story that, that we're meant to see. Uh, now, this might seem like high theology, and in a lot of ways it is, uh, but it's also incredibly ground level because it's dealing with things that happen to us all the time, things that we experience inside and outside of the church, things we experience in our hearts, uh, things like condemnation, um, and maybe we hopefully have at some point in our life from people, but we always have it from God, things like advocacy, and really broadening out even further, day-to-day spirituality, because it's kind of about two kinds of religious ideologies here. The one pointing fingers at the other about what they're doing or not doing. So Mark 2 is essentially, at the end of the day, law-centered teachers saying, look, you aren't doing something you're supposed to be doing. It's accusatory. It's exposing. And I don't know if you guys have ever been on the other side of that pointing finger before, inside the church or outside the church or right inside your own heart, as you might do this to yourself. But it's not a good thing. It doesn't feel good when you're exposed. Why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you a better version of yourself? Why aren't you abstaining harder from that thing? Uh, why aren't you like my hero over here? Uh, or again, we can say this about ourselves all the time because we all, we all have our own standards we fail to keep, much less God's. Um, but that's what's going on here. This is like the religious rulers literally saying you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. This is the voice of the law. It's entirely about doing or not doing. And that's where Jesus' voice comes in and serves as a different kind of voice. Uh, it's an anchor. It's a voice of love. It's a voice of advocacy. Uh, it, it's uh, a voice of putting his arm around us and saying, they're okay because they're with me. And here's the kicker. As he's doing this, he in no way goes against Scripture because Scripture itself speaks to this shift away from the law to a new David. He's quoting the Old Testament to justify for the change that's so hard for the religious Pharisees to understand. Uh, that want to put the law at the very top, right next to God and his Messiah, and blend salvation with us and it, being better versions of ourselves. And Jesus, uh, Jesus is saying that's not, what, that's not what it's about. The Bible itself speaks to this in the Old Testament. A thousand years before Jesus, you already saw a break from the old system happening, and it wasn't condemned. So your interpretive antennas should have gone up to see that this is always God's plan A, always what God wanted. Another David to come, and in the ultimate sense, uh, to break not just with the Sabbath, uh, not just with a couple of temple laws, but the entire system of us needing to perform, uh, of us needing to turn God's head with our acts of obedience. Uh, Jesus is doing away with that. And Mark 2 is another blip, actually. It doesn't actually fully happen until Jesus dies on the cross, but Mark 2 is much clearer than 1 Samuel 21. But make, make no mistake about it, Jesus is quite clear in saying this is what 1 Samuel 21 means. And so if you look at it actually, back to Mark 2, he's not going against Scripture uh, because Scripture itself speaks to this. He, he's, not, he's not saying, um, you know, actually Pharisees picking heads of grain doesn't constitute work. We're still following the rules here. Don't worry, they're okay. Um, 
We know this for a number of reasons. One, Jesus never says that. Uh, Two, he uses the word unlawful about both stories, right? So he's saying there's an unlawfulness in David's story that's being kind of projected onto mine. There's a breaking with it. So he's saying, he actually is acknowledging that the Sabbath is being broken. Just like in John 5 where it says they wanted to kill Jesus because he broke the Sabbath. So it's maybe even a bit more clear there. Um, Jesus is not trying to like defend the disciples' morality. He's not trying to defend them exactly what they're doing with their work or non-work as it were. But he's saying Have you read this story before in the Old Testament about David's unlawfulness? So this is not to condone sin, but it's to say David is more important than the law. He he is signifying by doing priestly things as a king that a new way, a new kind of priest, a new kind of king is on the horizon. And actually, um, as Hebrews 7.12 says, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And it's part of a larger argument in Hebrews where he's talking about Melchizedek as well. We're not going to go into that. If you kind of know who that is from Genesis 14, he's talking about David as well and how David's in his line and ultimately both of them in Jesus' line and saying, these are not Levites. These are not priests, and yet they're doing priestly things uh, and eating the bread of the presence. Uh, it even says elsewhere, I think in 2 Samuel, David's sons were priests at one point. Just this little passing comment. And as a reader, you're like, what? That's illegal. That's not, that's not possible. That you, you can only be a priest if you're a Levite. Yeah, it just kind of says, at one point, his sons were priests. Uh, and and he eats the bread of the presence too, because he's hungry, and it's not condemned. These are priestly things. And, and so David's actions are signifying a non-Levitical, a, apart from the old law kind of priest is coming to do priestly things that benefit you by grace, by his spilt blood, by the power of his resurrection, not on the basis of law. I'm summarizing a huge chunk of Hebrews 7 here when I say this, and even when I'm doing this, there's a thousand more things to say, but that's basically what he's saying. And David here is a forerunning picture of this, this new way. And when you change the law, uh, you change what's in between you and God. Uh, th- this is saying a new way of holiness is here. Uh, to be whole and holy is to be close to Jesus, to believe in him and what he has done for you. Uh, or as David says here, um, whether on ordinary or special missions, we are holy and we are pure. And in one sense, he's just saying uh, in the Old Testament to, uh, to have sexual relations with your spouse um, made you unclean, at least at certain times. And so David's saying, uh, my men weren't. And so we have that kind of ceremonial purity. But in another sense, like, it's interesting, he's saying whether ordinary or special, there's a holiness, there's a purity uh, that comes. And I think that too is kind of a voice of truth and kind of a hearkening ahead into the future to say that a time is coming when it won't depend on the external and the circumstantial, or on us at all, but simply who we are with. Uh, Jesus here would chime in and say, the time of doing and holiness is over, and the time of being and holiness is now here. That's exactly what Mark 2 is getting at. Um, The time of being able to be exposed on the basis of what you do is ending. 
Uh, This is how he advocates, not on the basis of justifying our sin, but saying now a covenant is coming where you're justified on the basis of what Jesus does for you, not on the basis of what you do. And so on that basis, there can be no counting. There, There can be no scorekeeping. On the very basis of what he's saying about the New Testament, it's eradicated. And so the time of being in holiness uh, is here. Jesus is saying, those who are with me are holy. Those who bask in my grace and forgiveness and who receive from my hand are called saints, which is the etymology of that word is basically holy one or set apart one. Uh, They are holy ones. To simply believe in my gospel is what makes you holy. And so no one can point at my people anymore and say, why aren't they doing more? Because I am your more. I fill that space. I'm sufficient. I'm enough. The time of exposure, the time of counting and scorekeeping, the time of the law is ending. And the time of the reign of the second David, of the Son of God, is here. And 1 Samuel 21 is one small voice in the chorus of that narrative throughout the Bible, the whole Bible, the Old Testament especially, And Jesus is here saying, haven't you read that before? Religious people who are keeping score and who are counting and who are doing and exposing and condemning and rating. He's saying, you missed it. And if you read it right, you would see that this is not new. Uh, Look at the life of David and learn about the Messiah from his life. Learn about what he would be like, expectations around what he would be like and how he would be altogether different than the law that contrasted with him, things that couldn't get us near to God. All right, so then the question, um, I think, becomes going back to 1 Samuel 21 and kind of leaving Mark 2 a little bit behind for a second. I mean, we'll keep referencing it sort of, but um, to preach 1 Samuel 21 and to ask this question of, What is the thing that led to this shift? Because that's a massive, massive shift that Jesus is saying is happening around him. That he's new wine and there's new wineskins in our heart that has to receive that change, that newness, that progressiveness, essentially. uh, That the extreme conservatives of his day were having a hard time with because they didn't believe in any kind of change in Scripture. But Jesus is saying, no, it actually is all over scripture. Uh, David was a change agent. Um, And so it's a cataclysmic thing. It's massive. And and so to highlight that, to acknowledge that, to see it, we still have to ask the question, how? And what's the thing that ultimately led to this this shift? Did God just say it was going to change? Or did he do something in history to enact that change? And the answer is the latter. The answer is actually, and I've already been kind of alluding to it, the answer is the cross of Christ. But the interesting thing is here, we don't have to leave 1 Samuel 21 to see uh, glimpses of it. And so I don't know if you guys have um, heard that old Mr. Rogers quote, um, when tragedy strikes, look for the helpers. Anybody heard Mr. Rogers say that? A couple people. I think he, um, I, was, I said this first service and, I, and someone else said, I think I was 9-11 and so, um, and I'm pretty, yeah, so I think like right after that, 
I think it was his mom actually that says it, that said it, and he would like bring that into his broadcast. It's kind of a cool thing. When things are really hard, look for people who are helping to kind of lift your spirits. But anyway, but I digress. Um, to use that template here, why I'm mentioning this, to use that template, uh, I would say when reading your Bible, look for the sufferer and let that point you to Jesus. Uh, in other words, when confusion strikes in your Bible reading, when the stories are foggy and hard to understand, look for the thing or the person that suffers. What's being torn? What's being cut open? What's being struck or split? What's being abandoned? Who's taking a bullet and incurring the penalty for the sake of others? Who's moving toward the victim at cost to himself or herself? And let all of those questions point you uh, to the one who fulfills, who answers the questions ultimately and serves as the better version behind the smaller pictures of the answers to those questions, say in Old Testament narrative and places like that. Or as it says in Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is an idiom for the whole Testament, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You, you see how keen Jesus is on this, how important this is for Jesus, whether he's referencing Mark 2 and, and to his critics, the Pharisees, or whether he's opening the Bible with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, how important this is for Jesus to say, the whole Old Testament's about me. I'm showing you how it was about me all along. He couldn't wait to do it. Hours after he walked out of that tomb, he's opening a Bible with his two disciples and pointing and explaining and clarifying and saying, it was me all along. And it says their, their mind was opened and their hearts burned within them when they were actually able to understand the Bible on the terms of Christ and not the terms of them. It's about him in his grace all along. And so applying that to this passage, as we've been doing throughout this whole series, um, you see it, Jesus' sufferings in, in two places, David's aloneness and the bread itself. And so with the idea of aloneness, the, the thing here is, if Jesus is saying David is a picture of me in this passage, and he is, then David is also a picture of Jesus' aloneness. So the priest, the priest asks him when he gets there, why are you alone? Why is no one with you, even though his friends were there as well, just kind of uh, outside? That this reminds us that there is a, a privacy and like a singularity about Jesus' mission for us. Remember how private he was at times about his identity and his miracles in the gospel accounts. Um, and you start to see it there, but it's later on the cross where his aloneness really shines when all of his friends flee and he's left alone to suffer, which signifies his unassisted work in saving us from our sins. Uh, the, the statement here um, in 1 Samuel of the king said no one's to know anything about the mission is the same as saying God says no one is to assist Jesus on the mission of saving the world from its sins. And so no one was there helping him. No one was there assisting him. No one was there saying, I knew this time was coming. I did the math. I knew it was going to happen. I knew, I knew this moment was on the horizon. Nor were they helping Jesus move the stone away from the tomb three days later. Uh, Jesus single-handedly did all this, just like David was there alone in the old stories to, again, to, to, 
If David is a, a New Testament figure, it makes all the sense in the world there would be an aloneness when it comes to solving any kind of problem. In this case, it's a little bit of hunger. Why is David there alone? It's a good question. The priest asks it. It's actually a really deep question. Why is he there alone? It's existential. It's theological. It's literary. Uh, we should know the answer to this. Uh, this is not just like the priest to David, like it's a story. This is a question for you and me. Why is David there alone? See, to ask that question is to ask, why is Jesus there alone on the cross? Why did no one help him move the stone away? It's because he's not asking you to help him. He loves you too much for that. He doesn't need it. Uh, there's no blending of you with him when it comes to salvation. Uh, it's singular it's set apart. It's we're outside while he heals and resurrects and loves and advocates and goes to work. In this case, in the temple, which is to say he brings us to God, to his father's very presence on his own as the ultimate high priest. And so because that's true, um, again, ground level stuff, you and I don't have to fear being alone from God anymore. And we feel it all the time, but we don't have to fear it in our loneliness, he is there. It's, it's not up to us to fill that gap, to solve the problem of separation. Um, nor does our closeness to God fluctuate based on our moral actions uh, as much as we might think that. Because it's very natural to think that. That's how we're wired, to think that what we do uh, affects God's plan to save us or God's way of covenanting relationship-wise with sinners. But the reality is it doesn't. And so we don't have to fear that anymore. We don't have to think about bad days and good days as Christians anymore. Uh, you don't have a good day as a believer or a bad day as a believer. Uh, we don't feel like we have those days as human beings all the time, and we do, absolutely. But in terms of what it means to be a Christian, what this is all saying is you can stop thinking that way and talking that way. You just are a Christian uh, or you're not. And it's good that you're a Christian because God in his goodness has given you his goodness and given you his blood. And so whether we feel alone or not, whether we're succeeding or not, uh, whether we have a high or a low, Jesus dies for us while we're still sinners and brings us home. The second piece is to look at the bread. And the idea here is that like the bread of the presence was removed from the Lord weekly, so was Jesus taken away to be crucified, away from his Father's presence. The ultimate bread of the presence, uh, speaking of Jesus, removed from the presence of the Father, so he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this is a similar uh, thing to what we were just saying, but a slight shift of the diamond, a slight, slightly different facet to say that now we don't have to fear being removed from the presence of God or being taken away from him anymore or sent out of the garden like Adam and Eve were based on their one sin. It just took one, and God expulsed them, exiled them from the garden. Instead, we are ones who feast on the bread, who are brought into a temple we have no business entering. And so, and again, a breach had to happen to make that possible. The law had to be overcome because the law kept us out. So if we are to hope to enter, we have to be behind Jesus and with him and clinging to him, the one who breached past it like David his ancestor on our behalf. 
So the idea then, the further idea here, the good news is that Jesus' blood has opened up a new way for us. His, the brokenness of his body or the bread, the old things have been removed Uh, like the bread of the presence after it's a week old and the new has been put in. And so we can stop trying to break in and believe in a God who broke in for us first and then who broke past and out of the temple to be with us um, like the veil was torn on that ultimate Good Friday 2,000 years ago. And that, I think, is the final word here. Um, Someone once said uh, a long time ago that Christianity is like a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Or that evangelism, Christian evangelism, is like a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's true. Um, That's the simplicity of like being a Christian, talking about the faith with other people, uh, talking about it with other Christians. It's that simple. Um, But 1 Samuel 21, I think, says, I can actually do you one better. And, And to see it, put yourself in the place of David's friends. And what it must have been like to be there, to be in the outside of something that David was doing in a breaching kind of way, an unlawful kind of way, a risk-taking kind of way, a suffering kind of way, going in somewhere that they couldn't go to get something that they couldn't reach. And so I, put it, I could put it this way, that Christianity is like a king who went to find bread for us in the unlikeliest of places, a place where we couldn't go a place the law precluded us from going, but a place that was opened up by the king's own spilt blood so we don't have to beg, but simply receive from the generous, nail-pierced hand of the bread of life himself who gives to us even before we ask. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story, for your word, the depths of it, the riches of it, uh, the complexity, and yet, the clarity, Jesus, that you yourself bring. Uh, Whether you see yourselves as an extension of the old or a complete breach or breaking away from it, um, the gospel is in both of those things, and we praise you for it. You are the bread of the presence, the ultimate one. You are the Sabbath, the ultimate one, and yet you break from the law so we can actually have access to you now. There's no more walls or veils or temples. The Bible even says, as Christians, we are the temple. The church is the temple. Like where Christians are, that's where Jesus is. Where we're gathered, that's where you are. So there's nowhere to go. There's no pilgrimage or journey. There's no mountain to climb or ocean to swim. You are constantly coming towards us. And we thank you for that wonderful, many times hard to understand and feel and truly believe, but that wonderful reality of grace that um, means to us that your love is always bigger and always more just sufficient for us and our more and our enoughness. And and so we pray for that, God, as as a people who are weary, uh, burdened, sinful, um, broken, lost, full of doubts and disbeliefs and hurts, um, this good news that you enter into that space and become that on the cross for us and kind of solve that by becoming it yourself as our advocate and dying in our place so that we can have closeness with you again. Uh, I I pray that that picture of you would save us from our despair, not just our sins, but our despair as well, Uh, whatever that's looking like for us today and this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.